Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion. I'm joined today, as always, on the interviewer side of the mic by Dr. Ashani Dasgupta, CAD's postdoctoral fellow. Ashani, how's it going today? It's going great. Thank you. Thanks to the great leadership of our colleague Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel has gotten some freshening up. Episodes are available on the CAD website through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for Center for Asia Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future episodes. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Professor Jivan Sharma to discuss the upcoming election in Nepal. Uh, Professor Sharma is senior lecturer, uh, associate professor in American terms, in South Asia and International Development at the Department of Social Anthropology and co-director of the Center for South Asian Studies at the University of Edinburgh. He is the author of Political Economy of Social Change and Development in Nepal, uh, 2021, although as you'll hear in our episode, soon to be celebrated with a launch uh, in uh, in person, um, and also uh, earlier the author of Crossing the Border to India, Youth, Migration, and Masculinities in Nepal. Uh, he's currently working on a third project on precarity of low-income migrants in and from South Asia. His work is focused on labor migration in the context of social, economic, and political transformations in Nepal the Himalayas, and the South Asian region, especially the culture of migration, border crossing, gendered, classed, and racialized mobility of labor, ill treatment, access to justice, and citizenship in South Asia. He's the co-editor of Himalaya uh, and an associate editor of South Asia Journal of South Asian Studies. He is the general secretary of Britain-Nepal Academic Council and an executive member of the British Association of South Asian Studies. Uh, The topic couldn't be more timely as Nepal prepares for the second election under its newest constitution in just a couple of weeks. A major theme in our conversation today um, is the rapid social and political progress Nepal has made from insurgency to fairly well-consolidated democracy, with many quite progressive formal political institutions in spite of challenges that, of course, remain um, uh, as in any democracy. What stood out to you in our conversation, Ashani? You know, what was really great was, or really fascinating, I should say, was seeing how coalition politics and quotas work. Uh, Political ideology almost seemed incidental and people too seemed much more invested in the promises of politicians rather than in any ideological impetus, according to what Professor Sharma was saying. I think this sort of dynamism is pretty characteristic across the political landscape in South Asia. Yeah, it's interesting. It may, to some of our listeners, um, sound a contradiction in terms to hear about pragmatic or non-ideological Marxist or Leninist or Maoist parties, um, but keep listening and you'll hear a little bit about what that might mean in practice. Uh, all right, so without any further ado, let's turn to that conversation with Professor Javan Sharma. All right, great. Well, we are here again today with Professor Jivan Sharma. Thanks again for being here. We're so glad that you uh, could make the time to be with us. Thank you. Uh, great to be here. And uh, and before we jump to, to all of the important substance today about uh, Nepali politics, we do also know that congratulations are in order. Uh, your book is not exactly fresh off the presses, but it will be freshly launched again tomorrow. So we thank you for, uh, for taking the time to, to join us. Um, and, uh, and, and we can raise a virtual glass to you here on the podcast today. 
just to start us off i wanted to ask uh, a larger overview question uh, what has been the trajectory of nepal's polity from a monarchy to a democracy how has it developed and what is the status of the polity now uh, would you characterize it as a healthy democracy oh thank you the big questions and i think uh, the last one in particular i'll probably come at the end um i think as you as you put it uh, nepal has made uh, a notable uh, transformation from what i call a feudal centralized hierarchical monarchy to a republican order and uh, you know we often use the term you know from monarchy to republic from centralized to fe- federal from hindu to secular uh, remarkable by any standard uh, within what we call a, a relatively very short period of time so time just feels like really really short what probably took uh you know hundreds of years uh in the western sort of context uh is is uh witnessed um in a couple of decades in nepal uh, less than that so so we've seen this sort of major transformation in nepali states um and polity uh which has now attempted to ingrain sort of you know these ideas of rights equality uh inclusive citizenship um uh often fraught with tension but nonetheless the state has attempted to be uh, quite progressive in the last uh, uh, you know um, couple of decades uh, or so uh, so i would say last 3 decades we've seen a huge transformation um starting with the 1990s revolution when the democracy uh, multi party democracy was restored to a very difficult period of maoist insurgency between 1996 and 2005 and again um you know quite a remarkable peace process uh, by any standard uh, uh despite difficult um journey onwards uh there has been a peaceful resolution to the conflict um in that sense and then uh, to a new sort of constitutional settlement uh yeah so we've made a huge huge uh, transformation in in that sense uh, within a very short period of time Yeah so Nepal will be conducting uh, an important national election in just a couple of uh, of weeks um and as you reference it'll it'll be uh, just the second election under this current version of the of the constitution um can you maybe briefly tell us and our listeners sort of who the major contenders are in this election season um if i'm understanding things correctly it's a race between coalitions um what does it mean to have coalitions are these ideological are they personalistic um are they just marriages of convenience um that would be very helpful to to unpack a bit Yeah I think that's that's absolutely I think as you you right um this is uh, going to be the second uh, uh general election um uh you know after a, you know quite a contentious um uh, constitution of 2015 uh we need to kind of really understand that there is a group uh, political faction within Nepal which uh does not necessarily agree with 2015 uh, constitution um yet uh there has been a some sort of you know constitutional settlement following that has led to uh, elections so if you think about you know elections as a way you know constitution and then you know moving on to elections as a way to kind of you know strengthen consolidate democracy um you know nepal on its in in on its uh, road uh, to do so uh yes the election that is taking place in the next uh, say couple of weeks or so um is uh between um 
mainly between, uh, although there are a number of political parties out there, including independent candidates, mainly between two coalitions, let's put it like this. Um, there are, you could call it, you know, there are five or six major political players in Nepal, um, and the big players are Nepali Congress um, um, and UML, that is United, uh, CPN UML, that is the, you know, Communist Party of Nepal, United Marxist Leninist, a uh, very important player again. So these two camps or these two parties are leading two different coalitions, quite unusual coalitions, you would say. Um, so you have Nepali Congress um, with the Maoist party, uh, uh, at once the sort of, you know, basically enemy party um, for the Maoist, uh, Nepali Congress, a sort of, you know, feudal party led by feudal lords and sort of, you know, that's, that was the sort of representation of Nepali Congress by uh, Maoist when they went to war uh, as the enemy, number one enemy. And the Nepali Congress was in the government and they put head price uh, for the leaders and now they are together. You know, it's quite unusual, practical, pragmatic sort of electoral kind of calculus move in that sense. Then you have UML with RPP, or it's called Rashtriya Prajatantra Party, uh, a communist party, it's, you know, fairly liberal sort of communist party in that sense, but nonetheless uh, working with uh, RPP, which is basically a pro-monarchy party uh, led by um, all the pro-monarchy politicians, um, of the mainly, you know, the heroes of pre-1990 <laughs> pre era, you know, those who held important ministerial positions or became prime ministers, they are the ones who are basically supporting that party or are the backbone of that party. Um, so this is quite unusual in the sense that in the last election, the coalition was slightly different in the sense that the coalition was between CPN UML and the Maoist. Um, which actually became one single party uh, following the, the last election. And uh, so this election coalition is very different, um, quite unusual, um, doesn't look natural in that sense, you see. So that's what, it, that's what makes this coalition really puzzling uh, from, from, for an observer. Yeah, I mean, uh, just, just to briefly yeah. follow up on that, I'm sure it's hard to know, but I mean, do, does the fact that these are kind of unusual alliances make them less durable after the election is over? Or is there any is there any way to know if this might actually be a kind of lasting arrangement? My personal view is that um, these are unstable, uh, not quite durable uh, coalitions. These are basically um, coalitions um, for the election for this election. So they they, they were formed uh, a while ago, basically to and you know basically. The current government coalition is Nepali Congress uh, Maoist uh, Party uh, with a faction of the ethno-regional party from Nepal's Tarai, from Madhes. Um, uh, so there are various factions within Madhes as well. So one faction is with the CPN UML-led coalition, the other faction is with the Nepali Congress-led coalition. So they also you know, broke into two. Um, so they have been standing together partly because they, they, they were the ones who got rid of the last government led by K.P. Sharma Oli, uh, who was the prime minister and the president of uh, UML. Um, so I think after that, they've been sticking together because uh, K.P. Oli had uh, 
become quite popular with his nationalist sort of sentiments, uh, issues to do with Nepal's territory, border, uh, and he's quite a nationalist uh, sort of figure in terms of, you know, hill nationalism in Nepal. Um, so he, he was gaining quite a lot of popularity, particularly um, with the uh, India-Nepal blockade uh, following the Nepal earthquake. Um, that is the kind of point at which he became quite popular across the divides, ideological divides, class divides, and so on. And then again, he again uses sort of, you know, Nepal's map a redrawing of Nepal's map um, on disputed uh, sort of territory in in western part of Nepal with India. So that again heightened his pop popularity. So in some sense, this alliance of Nepali Congress and the Maoist uh, with uh, one faction of you know Madhesi Party uh, is to try to keep K P Sharma Oli out of uh, his premiership and also out of his, out of electoral victory because UML is quite powerful in, in terms of its organizational capacity, but also its popular politics, quite populist in its orientation, with a bit of, you know, Hindu, well, I won't say Hindutva per se, but a bit of Hindu religious sentiments running um, there, but not just them, but you know, every, every single political party has that. So it's difficult to kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, put that to UML. So this is, so to answer your question, come, coming back to answer your question, uh, unlikely to sustain, and I think because we saw UML and Maoist party together previously, it is possible that following the election, UML and Maoist party may get back together because this is what many observers uh, in the West in particular um, argued that that was uh, uh, architect, you know, that was the kind of creation uh, of China, that China wanted to see one unified communist party in Nepal, and it had been that, and then, then they, you know, became two and quite um, lo looked in in quite opposite sort of direction in that sense, right? Um, so yes, yeah, yeah. So there's we'll get back to the to the Hindu nationalism point too in just a second, um, but just to sort of real quick before we turn to that. There's a lot of talk um, across South Asia these days about, um, and, and more broadly, honestly, obviously, um, including here on these shores, um, about questions about the quality of democratic governance, democratic backsliding, um, electoral institutions kind of not holding up very well. Um, do we see any symptoms of that in Nepal in this election cycle? Are there are there sort of salient issues that are sort of tied to the health or quality of democratic institutions that are that have been uh, sort of prominent in campaigns for, for these coalitions? Uh, I think that's a really important question. I think um, I won't say backsliding. I think uh, we've seen. Um, I've always argued that you know Nepal's uh, Nepal has been through such an intense process of state restructuring and political transition. I think what we are witnessing in Nepal is is nothing abnormal in that sense. It's a race um, that one uh, you know that uh, the country has undertaken, or you know different political players have undertaken within a very short period of time. And there are these you know symptoms that you would see that uh, sometimes may seem like. Um, you know, are we sort of, you know, backsliding or is it about, you know, deteriorating quality of Nepal's democracy? I don't think so. I think what we are seeing in Nepal is fragmented politics, that's for sure. It's a continuation of patronage politics, um, a politics that is very much based on patronage. Um, 
and a pattern, uh, a politics that is based on, you know, what we call uh, coalition politics, um, because uh, these are the sort of, you know, six, say, key um, political players out there in Nepal, and they have to rely on each other, uh, which started mainly in Nepal's uh, politics following the peace process, that there was a kind of, you know, all-party consensus uh, government, an attempt to try to kind of, you know, following the peace process as a way to kind of move forward uh, before institutionalizing um, Nepal's state through a new constitution and the parliament or constitutional assembly to try to bring all the political parties together as a, what, what they called was uh, all-party uh, consensus, which is really interesting. In, in some sense, this is what uh, goes against democratic norms as well, in the sense that you know, parties compromised on their ideology on various interests would converge. So there are, you know, when there is, there comes to power sharing agreements, for instance, political parties would get together. Uh, and what you're seeing in, the, in this election as well, how is it possible for Maoists to, you know, have alliance or coalition with the Maoists? It's because it's purely practical. You know, so there is, there's no ideology there. So it's, it's a pragmatic sort of politics in that sense. So, yeah, I won't say backsliding, but it's a sort of continuation of that, and it's probably taking um, uh, uh, a bit of time. And the kind of nature of democracy is such that it it looks like it's um, probably sliding downhill. But I think we have to really see that this is how politics is done in Nepal, in South Asia, and that's how democracy looks like in that sense. Because now I can come to this point later, but you know, if you see, you know, there are two indicators for me: media and civil society in Nepal, and both are very vibrant, much vibrant than, say, I would say in Nepal, um, you know, oh, sorry, but than India um, across the border, which claims to be the you know biggest democracy in the world. But if you see media in Nepal and media in India today, uh, vastly different um, in terms of censorship, monopoly by business uh, houses, uh, you know, close to the b ruling government or um, civil society uh, in Nepal. It's pretty vibrant, you know, to see that, you know, the kind of messy politics, but at the same time, vibrant uh, public sphere, uh, whether it is media or it is civil society or you go to tea shops. You know, what I find fascinating in Nepal is people turn in high numbers to vote, right? Uh, but then they go to the tea shops and say, these are useless politicians, they don't do anything, right? They are also quite uh, critical of politicians, but they would go and vote for them and uh, they would happily elect them and they would happily, you know, sort of change the government. Uh, uh, you know, something you, will, you would notice in Nepal's polity that every other election, um, they have uh, not voted for the ruling uh, party. So they have voted for the opposite one. So in the sense that, you know, <laughs> you, you always, you know, that, that's the kind of, you know, some, some sort of, you know, procedure, in procedural terms, some sort of functioning uh, mm -hmm. democracy that, that you can see. Um, so people would criticize politicians um, and then go, go and vote for them. And they would also go and take, you know, whatever little amount of money sometimes or take food in exchange for votes, you know, they would happily do that or they would go to politicians if we need to get some documents done. And they would criticize politicians for, for being corrupt and, you know, for not looking after. Yet, they are the ones who, so this is the sort of, you know, the messiness of uh, patronage politics that we see 
in South Asia, but particularly in Nepal. Um, so I wouldn't say it's it's sort of backsliding in that sense, although we have seen a bit of, uh, as I indicated earlier, in KP Sarma, all these politics, a kind of populism playing out, nationalism, kind of, you know, nationalistic sentiments, like in the US, we what we saw with Trump or, you know, what we saw in Britain, for instance, or in other parts of the world, in India, elsewhere, uh, Turkey. So that personality-driven populist kind of politics uh, is seen, but I don't think that has detracted or distracted Nepal from the path of democratic polity in everyday life. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, I, and I, I want to go back to, since we are talking about people, I want to talk to you, ask you about the importance of uh, religious ideology, because, you know, one of the ways in which democratic institutions in India or in a lot of the South Asian countries have been compromised is through this sort of marriage between religion and nationalism. Mm -hmm. So Nepal's political history has seen a complicated interplay between Hindu nationalism and communism. Yeah. Uh, can you first uh, talk a bit about how Hindu national nationalism factors into Nepal's politics and has it featured prominently in this particular election campaign? That's a really interesting question. I think I would add, uh, answer this in two parts. One is uh, going back in history, you know, going beyond the sort of, you know, southern neighbor sort of politics in India, you know, in terms of Hindutva. That's where we hear a lot about Hindutva and so on. You know, Nepal was a Hindu state. You know, it was the only Hindu state in the world until, 19, uh, until 2005. Um, so after the peace process, when a new constitution uh, was was written, uh, constitutional assembly, you know, the first meeting of the, the kind of reinstated parliament and the constitutional assembly basically got rid of Nepal as the only Hindu kingdom, uh, which is very much attached to monarchy, right? So it was the king uh, as the you know, kind of religious leader, as Vishnu, um, as the god who is basically, that's how, Nepal's Hindu state uh, was sort of maintained. So in some sense, the end of Hindu state, uh, uh, monarchy and the Hindu state uh, and um, Nepal becoming a republic and a secular state is a major departure from that kind of normalized Hindu politics in that sense. Nobody talked about it as Hindutva, but that was the kind of you know basic backbone of Nepal's polity in that sense, right? Uh, always claimed as the kind of, you know, the only Hindu is, is nation in, 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 in the world. And then, you know, what about Christians? What about Muslims? What about other Zanzatis? Kind of, you know, um, various uh, indigenous nationalities in Nepal. That question was asked, but uh, only in the recent sort of uh, decade um, in that sense. So the kind of Hindutva politics that we see um, in Nepal uh, and how it sort of, you know, works with, say, the prominence of communist parties in Nepal. And this is really interesting in the sense that if you put all the communist parties together in Nepal, they will be the majority. They may sometimes have enough two-third majority to basically change the constitution and do whatever they like. Uh, but the interesting fact about communist parties, as we know, is they can't stay together. They're always factions, uh, has been throughout. Um, so to understand that, for me, what is really interesting is uh, I understand Nepal's communist parties, not just as communist parties, whether they use the name Mao or, you know, uh, Marxist, Leninist, they are nationalist. Uh, mm -hmm. Communist parties are highly nationalist 
And I learned this when I worked with um, uh, on Maoist um, uh, combatants, uh, where the rhetoric they have uh, uh, basically been through was all about nationalism, nationalistic sort of sentiments about territory, uh, in identifying Nepal as mother, for example, and you know, border became really important. So I would, I would, I'm what I'm trying to do is to kind of try and connect communism or the communist parties, a communist movement in Nepal, with nationalist politics, and nationalist politics therefore with Hindu politics in some sense. So there is a very clear, uh, without any tension, sort of line drawn between. Hindu politics, communism um, in Nepal in that sense, and you know through nationalism. Uh, the question is, what happens to the king, and what happens to the Hindutva politics that we see uh, in a sort of spillover um, um, between the border, uh, you know, uh, with India being such. A closed country, you know, sort of, we call it India locked uh, for Nepal, right? So it's, it's been locked from three three sides, and one side you've got Tibet, China. Uh, of course, uh, with open border and the kind of hegemony of India and Nepalese politics, you know, any major political transformation has always involved India, mm. right? So before the Comprehensive Peace Agreement was signed, the, the agreement took place in the New Delhi, for instance. The agreement prior to that, uh, when major political part, political change took place in 1950, took place in New Delhi, for instance. The king was flown in by airplane to the Indian embassy, and you know all the power-setting agreement took place. So India has been an important player, and obviously with Indian politics, the kind of current Indian politics with BJP, the ruling government uh, sort of being there, uh, there is. A sort of sense of Hindutva, sort of politics in Nepal. I think what what is different about Nepal in that is uh, it's, there is no single party like BJP in Nepal who wants to champion Hindutva cause. Although RPP, the party of the former monarch king, Rashtriya Prajatantra Party, that is uh, in coalition with the CPNUML. Um, publicly has talked about, you know, sort of bringing um, monarchy back, uh, Hindu religion back, and so on, but it's not really a popular party, right? Um, with, with maybe about 5% popular vote in, in Nepal, not, not even that. Um, so what is really interesting is you would see Nepali Congress, UML, uh, including Maoist party, which is what uh, championed secular, the cause for secularism in Nepal, also evoking um, sort of signs of Hindutva at times. Um, you'd see that kind of in, in various performances and so on. Um, so it is going to be different in the sense there is not a single player like BJP that would have um, monopoly over Hindutva. So therefore I don't see Hindutva politics uh, as we are seeing in India playing out in Nepal. Uh, there is no competition, you see, uh, in other words. Mm -hmm. that's, you know, everybody has to play that because uh, pretty much uh, to get your vote, uh, you've got, uh, I can't remember the current figure, it keeps changing. In the last census, we'd have the most updated data on Nepal's Hindu sort of population is, you know, when I was studying, they used to say, you know, over 90% is, is probably somewhere between above 80% uh, now with um, 
you know, various uh, other groups claiming not to be Hindus. Uh, you know, it's probably 85, whatever percent is, it is there. So all parties will need to play Hindu card, Hindu card to some, some extent. Um, uh, and historically, the monarchy has always been the Hindu card in that sense, right? So yeah. uh, in terms of kind of ritualistic practices, in terms of, so, you know, public holidays, in terms of how the state conducted itself, in terms of its own ceremonies, um, uh, how public holidays were given, uh, which has become highly democratized now, but it was not the case earlier. Um, so yes, I, I would see that, you know, Hindutva politics will continue to play and there are groups who uh, are advocating uh, and are working across the borders. Um, uh, so BJP, uh, uh, um, what is that, Biswa Hindu Parishad, for instance, um, RSS um, have their organizations in Nepal, uh, but they're not as strong uh, as you would, you would think uh, they would be. You know, given yeah. the kind of proximity of the border, and and it doesn't, based on what you're, uh, how you frame those comments there, it doesn't seem like the major parties are all that threatened by it, because you could imagine that they might worry that, oh, okay, this is going to sort of undercut our basis of support. We need to, we need to, you know, play this card as hard as they're playing it and kind of get yeah. into the cycle. But that doesn't seem to be what you're, what you're that seeing. Doesn't, that doesn't, yeah, um, that's my reading. That you know, yeah. RPP has been trying to play Hindu card, but doesn't seem to work. Um, so uh. yeah. So uh, I I think we should now, I mean, we've covered a lot of Maoism and the monarchy. I want to ask you a little bit about the legal systems and the laws. So citizenship, affirmative action and politics have always been sort of a site of tension in a lot of countries, right? Um, and Nepal faces an ongoing controversy over a citizenship bill that is tied to gender politics. Uh, can you talk a bit about this bill? Why is it so controversial? And what does it mean for the status of women in the country? Uh, that's a fascinating question. I'm probably not the expert on this, but I think I can give you a kind of uh, an overview of, of where, where things stand and what, what, what is the controversy about. So so basically the citizenship bill became has become quite controversial in Nepal um, because partly because of uh, you, you could call it sort of Nepali nationalism in that sense. Um, obviously there is a kind of historical sentiment, a small state sort of surrounded by you know, on three sides by India, China, there is a kind of, although Nepal is not necessarily a small state, if you think about overall the world, because it is between these giants, uh, it, it always has a psychological effect as a small state in that sense, right? So, so the provision uh, that uh, um, uh, we, we, we had in, in, in the citizenship uh, bill was, uh, say, if a Nepali man marries a foreign, say, woman, and you have a child and so it's fairly straightforward easy to get citizenship um, whereas if it is the other way if it is uh, a Nepali woman with uh, a foreign man in that sense um, it would get tricky the bill last bill that it had the provision was uh, that you had to declare the status of nationality uh, or say not identified for example to apply for citizenship and face sort of legal consequences if that came out to be untrue uh, so in some sense 
and and this is just the kind of one example, right? So historically, um, you know, in Nepal, I think to go back, you know, where the origin of this citizenship controversy comes in Nepal, mainly because of Nepal's um, particular geopolitical location. So you have Nepal's Tarai, uh, the, the land that sort of, you know, in the adjoining uh, areas with India in the southern plains, right? Where people for a long time have been marrying across the border uh, for a very, very long time. Um, you know, even before you could imagine political boundaries were drawn. Um, so King Mahendra the in 1950s, uh, well, the one who took over in 1960 um, after a 10 year long sort of brief experimentation with multi-party democracy between 1950 and 1960. So he had a particular idea of Nepali nationalism and hill nationalism and always saw that cross-border marriage, cross-border mobility as a threat to Nepal's sort of integrity in that sense. Um, so he tried to, at, at one point, you know, try to kind of uh, put forward various forms of, you know, Nepal has, uh, you won't, you know, you probably are aware of it. Nepal has uh, a documentation system called a citizenship card, which is not passport, which is not Aadhaar card, which is not elect <laughs> electoral card. It is called Nagrikta, which is a citizenship card, and it is written in Nepali language. It is the most authentic document you'll have in Nepal. Passport is not even seen as, as authentic as that citizenship card, okay? So you have to really go back to this politics of issuance of citizenship card. And so this became the kind of contentious part during the Panchayat era in 1970s, 80s and onwards. So large number of people in Nepal's Tarai have been um, without citizenship because, um, you know, they have married uh, uh, across, but also they are poor, they don't necessarily have documents and so on. And you're always seen with suspicion um, that, oh, well, it could be that, you know, all the Indians will come and, you know, marry in Nepal and someday they will take over. That's the kind of psychology that the heel nationalism that's been made to work. Um, and parties like RPP would, would champion this cause, right? So you, you would have these sort of ideas. So citizenship um, has always been contentious. It has been made much more easier uh, for a man um, marrying uh, women from outside to have the citizenship much more easily for the, for the women than, say, for the man. Because this is kind of gender politics playing in, right? So it's, it's okay to kind of bring in. So it's kind of threat with some sort of masculine sort of threat as well of a foreign man uh, getting a Nepali citizenship is always seen as a threat as opposed to bringing a woman um, um, uh, from outside uh, and making her Nepali in that sense. So that's why it, it has been controversial. and. The citizenship bill has been through, and it has always remained contro controversial and contentious, has been through a several rounds of revision. Uh, even the last round where, you know, the, the, the point where we are at is a, a point of contention where the president, who happens to be formal politician of UML, uh, when Congress party and Maoist party in the current go governing coalition attempted to put forward the citizenship bill. Uh, well, they basically passed the bill through the parliament, both the houses of the parliament. It went to the president. 
the president blocked it. Um, so you have a situation, you know, c coming back to the derailment of uh, democracy. I think mm. I, I should maybe, you know, kind of come back to that question and say, well, if you think about institutions, you know, the president's office or the involvement of Nepal's judiciary or judiciary being drawn into every single issue um, when there are there is no sort of you know way out through politics is always judiciary being pulled into every single thing whether it is the dissolution of the house of parliament whether president not you know kind of not signing it off as per the law as per the constitution so there is a kind of power tussle right uh, so you've got you know institutionally yes uh, there has been um, uh, challenge uh, throughout uh, this period. Uh, but coming back to the question on, on citizenship, um, yes, um, a large number of people remain, um, um, you know, uh, citizenship less, um, or, you know, uh, in, in, in that sense. Uh, and the process has continued with no um, clear sort of resolution in that sense. And I think activists have been fighting, okay, we can understand so there are two issues, right? One is about sort of issues that Madesi politicians or Madesi public are uh, are most uh, sort of vested in. It's about their own citizenship regardless of gender. Of course, gender is an issue. Then you have the kind of uh, citizenship for women uh, in general um, because, uh, the, because of discriminatory provision in the legislation, but also in the bill, uh, in the latest bill as well, which is supposed to be much more progressive in that sense. Um, so the to, there are two sets of questions. One is how long should one need to wait to get citizenship, Nepali citizenship, right? So every country has its own regulation. You have to stay for, you know, seven years or 10 years or 15 years or whatever. Uh, so that has also impacted a large number of people who marry across the border. Um, or otherwise. But the other question is discriminatory provision. Why is it possible for uh, women, uh, you know, men, men ma marrying women to get citizenship next day? But for a woman having to prove certain things or having to wait for five years, three years, and so on. Um, so that's the sort of point of contention. Yeah, one of the other really interesting kind of institutional features of uh, Nepali democracy that, um, that that stood out to me as, as I was doing some reading for, for our conversation was the nature of quotas in the in the country. There's this yep. sort of com complex electoral system tied to uh, kind of an intersection of gender quotas, indigenous status, caste yep. status. Um, can you just really, uh, as quickly as you can, give us a sense of what those quotas uh, look like, where they have come from, and, and are they doing yep. their job? Because quotas obviously can also be um, controversial at times. There's also questions about their effectiveness and, and implementation. Yep. Um, so how does that quota system work and what's your assessment yep. of, of how it's uh, functioned? This is, this is really, really interesting in the sense that um, um, Nepal has quite a progressive um, policy on affirmative action. And the history of this goes back to uh, social movements uh, in Nepal, uh, particularly uh, the movement led by um, indigenous uh, Adivasi Janjati groups, um, indigenous nationalities, they call themselves. Um, so there is a federation of indigenous nationalities called NEFIN, and it's a social movement that has been fighting, you know, prior to the Maoist, uh, for instance, 
um, launching their uh, people's war or insurgency, however we may call it. Um, so they have been quite playing quite an important role in raising the issue of recognition, identity, you know, and then talking about uh, representation and so on. So that was a social movement, you know, sort of moving forward. And the Maoist insurgency uses similar sort of language on not just based on ethnicity, but also based on gender, caste, um, ethnicity, and so on, right? So there, briefly, what you see is the kind of, you know, some sort of uh, implicit or a, a sort of explicit alliance between the Zanzati movement and the Maoist politics in that sense. Um, so Maoists quickly, you know, from a class-based movement, they changed their tactic. They also used the Zanzati card, for example, a regional ethnic sort of card to ask for, you know, rights and also as a way to kind of put forward um, uh, idea of rights would therefore mean recognition, representation, um, and therefore kind of the idea being quota system, right? So quota system, um, kind of formally it came um, in Nepal after the peace process after the kind of you know uh, peace settlement as a form of settlement of the conflict that recognition that conflict was due to unaddressed grievances of various marginalized groups um, so one way to kind of address the conflict not just the kind of peace settlement in the short term right in the long run one of, one of the ways um, uh, through liberal peace sort of approach to address long-standing grievances and conflict is to introduce the quota system. A quota system in every single sector uh, of uh, the state, uh, electoral system. So political parties uh, uh, will, will have quota system in the sense that you'll have, there are two electoral systems, I'm sure you, you're aware of it, you know, you've got the kind of, you know, what they call um, FTTP, I think it's called the kind of, you know, the kind of usual politics. The winner takes all, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and then you have the PR system, it's called the proportionate representation system, right? Um, where you have to submit a closed sort of envelope, in, in, in closed envelope, the, the, the name of all the candidates that would go through, through the proportionate representation uh, system. And once the votes are, votes are counted, so, so basically, to, to make the point, one is that electoral system has quota, has Im embedded quota system in the electoral politics. So all political parties will need to, uh, therefore, have for the PR quotas, whatever, however, however many seats, uh, certain um, uh, people from Zanzatis, from Dalits, from marginalized groups, and so on. Uh, similarly, for um, uh, civil service jobs, uh, you'll have quota, right? So you'll have quota for that as well. Um, so the idea is that to embed affirmative action in Nepal, and it has become, you know, quite a controversial thing uh, at the point of introdu introduction of these policies as well, that uh, these these policies. Um, uh, in some sense, uh, rigidify those categories that, you know, c uh, categories of ethnicity, for example, or, you know, Dalit category or other categories become rigidified. It became so contentious at one point that the, the other, the kind of general category, <laughs> uh, 
um, the elite uh, caste uh, ethnic groups started demanding that they also get quota. So in Nepal is, is one country where you'll find quota system for everyone. <laughs> so the quota system does not really have any meaning. So there is khas area quota. That is basically <laughs> all the <laughs> other dominant groups also have quota because they felt excluded from the quota system in that sense. So Someone should tell American quota. I think there could be an American audience for that kind <laughs> of thing. So you, you'll have a very, very interesting sort of, you know, you have a very interesting sort of system through which you have um, quota system defining everything now in, in Nepal's uh, politics and state. Um, uh, and there are, um, I need to kind of look at the numbers. Uh, I don't have them right in front of me. Um, actually, my book also talks about it, uh, <laughs> um, promoting my book in between there. Absolutely. So I, I, I discuss quite uh, extensively in the book on uh, um, quota system and the sort of debates around it, including the kind of facts facts and figures on quota system, which obviously keeps changing with, you know, every election. Um, yeah. 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 Maybe we can just very briefly, um, we've talked a little bit about the neighborhood that Nepal is in already. It's obviously uh, sandwiched between uh, two uh, world powers, both population wise, economically, to an extent militarily. Um, is uh, is the regional uh relationship between India and China sort of on the ballot in this election? Is it politically salient right now? Um, and if so, how? That's, that's, that's an interesting question. I think not much, I would say. This particular election um, is what we call a low profile election in that sense, because, you know, there are two high profile elections we've seen in Nepal. One after, nine, after the revolution of 1990, uh, because that was the first time the election was taking place. These political parties were, you know, contesting election. And there was a kind of, you know, election as the sort of age-defining election, because this is for the first time in a, in, a, in a generation political parties were contesting election, because prior to that there was party-less, monarchy-led panchayat system. And then after the peace process, the election of 2008, the election for constitutional assembly was also quite age-defining election. And you would see that quite in a celebratory sort of mode in Nepal's public sphere, because this was about, you know, peace process. This was about settlement of, you know, peace process, conflict. People were fed up with conflict. You know, people wanted to kind of, you know, things to move forward and so on. Other elections, uh, as we see today, this particular election does not have that feel uh, because it's one of the you know, one of the usual sort of, you know, normal type of election in that sense. But nonetheless, elections are really important uh, kind of um, events. Uh, 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 particularly, this election may be important for India and China for one reason, particularly for China, going back to the kind of coalition um, uh, politics that we spoke about at the very beginning. So you have UML and Maoist um, uh, not together, but in separate coalitions, right? Uh, and China, um, and they were together uh, in, in the last uh, election, and they even became one single party, right? Um, and there is a lot of reporting, um, and I would kind of agree with that, that, you know, China um, probably you know, it's not clear whether China actively tried to bring them together, but China would definitely, you know, want to see communist parties together. 
uh, but something didn't happen, right? So something didn't happen, and and people sort of started blaming India for the breakaway of the communist parties. You know, it's, it's one of those games you would see. Um, there is a speculation that you know, post-election, uh, it, it may be that you know, whichever, whichever parties get in there in coalition, whatever, how many, however, however many seats you get, it may be that you know, say UML and Maoist get enough seats to form the government on their own. And they may, it may be possible for the election, you know, kind of coalition to, to get formed that way as well, because uh, not only did UML uh, party broke into kind of, you know, Maoist party broke into another faction within UML, um, UML socialist uh, led by some of the longstanding Politburo members of UML also broke away from the core party because they didn't agree with the politics of KP Sharma Oli. So it's not just that the Maoist party became a separate party, but also another faction of UML party also became a separate party, which is in the coalition, governing co coalition government now, because they basically wanted to get rid of KP Sharma Oli as the prime minister, wanted to basically keep him out of, of, of electoral politics in that sense, if they could. Uh, so what is really interesting is whether if these three parties, which were once one single party, Communist Party of Nepal, for a brief period between uh, 1819, I think, or uh, 18 to 20 or 21, uh, they might come back together. And I think that is where the significance is for China. I think China would like to see them together. And I think India, don't know. You know in, in, India has had such heavy hands in Nepali politics that I think in, Indian um, foreign policy uh, officials have learned the lesson saying that maybe they don't want to get seen doing too much um, out, out there. So are probably keenly watching what is going on um, in, in Nepal in that sense. So that, that is the only sort of battle I can see geopolitically. And I think it's a battle will be keenly watched by what, what famously is called Nepal's sky neighbor, the US as well. Um, which has a long-standing, very strong presence in Kathmandu, has heavy interest uh, in in Nepal uh, because recently Nepal uh, passed, uh, you know, Millennium Challenge Corporation um, (MCC), which became, and there was this whole thing about Indo-Pacific sort of strategy, whether MCC was a part of it, and you know, you have you're basically dealing with BRI with China uh, in a sort of you know, this is sort of IR talk strategic sort of dialogues and debates taking place with uh, sort of is Nepal becoming the kind of battleground between not just between India and China, but also, you know, US engagement and which is really interesting, you know, um, for a long time, it was not just about India and China and, you know, US siding with India, it was also to try to keep, you know, India wanted to keep US away uh, and, and has been always because with the US, um, USSR sort of coalition uh, at, in, in 1950s, 60s you know, with, with India, um, it always saw US with suspicion as a threat. Uh, and you saw that during the Nepal's peace process uh, when UN wanted to basically be, you know, mediate Nepal's peace process. Um, India did not want Western presence in Nepal. Uh, and India has its own sensitivity around Kashmir, you know, it doesn't want to kind of have the third party engaged there. So it is really interesting to see how 
you know, the Nepal's peace process was managed uh, by UN presence. There was UN presence, but it was only for monitoring purpose. It was not actually mediating the peace process. So that's also quite interesting. So you, 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 you have these players, and of course the ele election result will have bearing on, I would say, on these three key players. And when I say the third, you know, sky neighbor, US, but also including UK has a huge stake with a large number of uh, former uh, Gorkhas and uh, you know, outstanding demands on pension and compensation and so on. Um, so yes, I think it will have some repercussion, um, but one explicit one would be the communist parties, whether they come together. And it is likely they will if they have sufficient um, number. This has been a really fascinating overview of a very com complicated political landscape. Uh, to conclude, I, I wanted to ask you a question. So Nepal has experienced this monumental constitutional change in a very short time. And looking forward, if you had the power to advise on one further institutional change to deepen Nepal's democracy in the light of the experiences under this new constitution, what would you recommend? <laughs> It's a tough question, difficult, you know, I've, I'm not used to giving prescriptions, but I, I think one thing is, you know, as I indicated earlier, I think um, institutions have not really been a problem, although we've seen the kind of institutions uh, drawn into uh, some challenges, whether it's the president's office or the judiciary being drawn again and again for the battle that is between political parties, for instance. Um, so I think Institutions are there, you know, whether you look at elections, you look at political parties, you look at how they are governed. Um, of course, uh, there are issues there, but uh, institutions are there, but they're, you know, fairly toothless because institutions, when we think about institutions, um, I'm not, you know, uh, by, by <laughs> discipline, I'm not trained as political scientist, but uh, I do have deep interest in, in institutions. And I, I think what seems to work in Nepal is, you know, you have these a set of formal institutions, right? And and we tend to kind of think about, you know, democratization, consolidation, etc. in terms of these formal institutions. But what seems to actually work is not that, it's the informal institutions, is the kind of pattern, is politics that actually makes the formal work uh, or appear to work in that sense, right? So. I think for me, the biggest sort of academic answer to a very, <laughs> very good policy policy puzzle you, you put forward is we really need to understand the informal uh, politics at play, the informal networks that actually work. And so I have argued always that, uh, in you know, we should not try to kind of get, get rid of informal. Uh, informal is what makes the formal work in the sense. Um, whether we call it, you know, uh, uh, corruption or patronage or various forms or various labels we give, we need to work with the existing form of politics um, because that is very much rooted in Nepali culture and Nepali politics. So we cannot have a sort of, you know, a clear uh, uh, Western style, sort of, you know, Westminster style political system that we have, we can't replicate that in practice because the relationships and the practices are informed by a very different rhythm. So working with the rhythm um, 
So I, I want to see patronage politics work for all rather than getting rid of patronage politics in the name of good governance, for instance. I think we need to work towards understanding how patronage politics informal systems work in Nepali politics, uh, not to get rid of, not, not as a way to get rid of them, but to build on that to ensure that some of the principles that Nepali constitution has um, championed on inclusion, on affirmative action, on you know various forms of democratic polity, to use that forum, to use that informal system to address some of these commitments that have been laid out in in a piece of paper or you know in, in various documents like constitution. I think that's one way to one way forward because what I've seen you know in my sort of academic <laughs> lifetime is whatever uh, analysis or whatever we've tried to do is to try to see the kind of the informal as a problem um, that will not take it forward in my view because it'll come back it will not go get away we cannot have a clean slate to start uh, what we have in constitution being practiced. So that's not how it works. It's not a policy that gets implemented and everything else will go away. Uh, those relationships, those that rhythm of politics will continue. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Javan Sharma, because now as we get the formal institutional results from the elections in the coming weeks, yeah. uh, we'll have an understanding of those informal uh, social bases of, uh, of democracy and inclusion, which are uh, are so important to the consolidation of uh, of democracy uh, in uh, Nepal and uh, farther afield. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Um, and for those listening, um, look out uh, both on our social media and websites of the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville um, for a research briefing coming from one of our undergraduate fellows on the uh, upcoming election, as well as materials related to democracy across the region. So thanks again, Professor. Uh, uh, have a good rest of the day and good luck with the book launch tomorrow. Thank you so much, both of you, for uh, an interesting set of questions. Um, uh, yeah, really enjoyed uh, having an exchange like this. <laughs> Made All me right. think. Yes. Thank you.